You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, you'll find this on page 930 of the Pew Bible, and we're going to be reading together verses 15 through 26. Acts chapter 21, verses 15 through 26. Hear the word of God. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Well, after a long journey, Paul and his companions finally arrived in Jerusalem. The brethren, were told here, received them gladly, and Nason provided lodging. And this was helpful because the city of Jerusalem would have been swelled with travelers to Pentecost. And it must have been a joyful reunion of old friends and fellow believers. The next day, there was this important assembly of church leaders convened. They went to see James, the recognized leader of the Jerusalem church. And all the elders were present, and Paul began to relay what God had been doing. And he gave a detailed account of his third missionary journey and all of its fruit. And was it not incredible how God was adding many converts to the church? The word of the cross, the gospel of Christ crucified, had been spreading rapidly. 
After centuries of Jewish exclusivism, the Gentiles now were entering into the kingdom. And of course, to those who were perishing, this was absolutely foolish. It seemed like a silly myth. It still does to many. Indeed, the gospel, Paul says, is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Because the Jews, as you probably know, expected a great prince who would crush the Roman oppressors. But Jesus was humble and he was poor. He died as a criminal on a Roman cross and they despised him. They held him in contempt. They summarily dismissed him. And from their part, the Gentiles mocked this crucified Christ. They laughed at such folly. How could anybody be saved by a man who couldn't even save himself? The Gentiles were intelligent people after all, well-read, highly educated. They sought wisdom, not fairy tales. Who would believe such nonsense? It would be, as they would say, the height of stupidity for me to embrace such a doctrine as this. Does any of that sound familiar? You can find it everywhere today. Culture, TV, internet. But you see, to those who are being saved, this gospel is the very power of God for salvation. Jesus told us, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. Those whom God calls, whom the Spirit sanctifies, who receive the gospel, they are the ones who understand the truth and receive Christ crucified. And he has the words of eternal life. And they hold fast to him by faith. And hence there is no reason for them to fear the judgment at the end of time because it's coming. Make no mistake about that. For them, death is a vanquished enemy, and they can die with confidence at Shirley's funeral. It was, in some respects, joyful, because we know where she is. Beyond the grave, they will enjoy forever the pleasures at God's right hand, and it's no wonder, then, that Paul was excited to tell Jerusalem leaders what had transpired, all these people coming in. And it was caused for great rejoicing among the leaders who had been listening. It says they glorified God. And surely at this meeting, Paul delivered the collection which had been taken up for the saints. These were the financial resources donated by the Gentile churches. Something he had been hoping to do for years. And he finally succeeded. And the Jerusalem leaders must have rejoiced in these gifts. But you know something? News of his ministerial success did create problems, apparently, for the Jewish Christians. New converts among the Jewish community also had increased dramatically, and under the blessing of God, many thousands of Jews had believed, which was a wonderful thing. But we're told they were zealous for the law. And sometimes today, when people are first converted, we say something like this, that they're in the cage stage, right? Those converted Jews should have been in a cage until their zeal was tempered with knowledge. Because zeal for the law was not inherently wrong, because God's law is a glorious thing. 
David says, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was God-breathed revelation. For thousands of years, Israel had lived their lives and cherished the Mosaic revelation. It had governed their practices and regulated their lives and informed their beliefs, so there was nothing wrong with a sincere appreciation for the law of Moses. The Jerusalem Council even agreed that the Jews could still practice their ancestral customs. At the same time, it declared that the Gentiles need not observe them. So when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, zeal for the law was heightened because of political unrest. Being subject to Roman tyranny was a sore spot among the Jews, as you can imagine. They fiercely despised Roman domination. They hated their oppressors. Repeated attempts at revolt had been brutally suppressed, which only increased the tension. And all of this caused the Jewish dislike for Gentiles to deepen and to intensify. And so the Jerusalem leadership found themselves in a very delicate and difficult quandary. On the one hand, they're grateful for Paul's gospel success among the Gentiles, but on the other hand, it seemed like he had completely repudiated the law of Moses. So what are they going to do? Not that he had to observe it, but this may have hindered their ministry among the Jews. They had heard reports, rumors, that Paul had repudiated Moses the greatest figure of the Old Testament. They heard slanderous gossip that he was telling Jews to abandon all the Jewish traditions. So news of Paul's arrival was likely to stir up the proverbial pot. What is this man doing in Jerusalem? Zealots prone to causing trouble might be fired up. And should that happen, there would be commotion and perhaps even a division in the church. So here's what they did. They worked out a solution, a possible solution involving Paul and Jewish traditions. Four believing Jews had taken a Nazarite vow, which really was an expression of Jewish piety. And in so doing, what these Nazarite vow people were supposed to do was to consecrate themselves to the Lord for 30 days. And during that time, they had to abstain from wine, strong drink, cutting of the hair and corpses. And these four men were nearing the end of their consecration, and the law required some very costly sacrifices. So Paul, they said, was to join these four men and defray the expenses of their vows. And it was believed, at least at this point, that it would illustrate Paul's appreciation for Judaism. Couldn't they see the evidence of his consideration of Moses? See, he not only defrayed their expenses, which is costly, but he was willing to be purified himself. And so doing, Paul did not compromise the gospel. He simply observed a Jewish tradition. He didn't do anything to jeopardize the truth of free grace to sinners. There was no redemptive significance attached to these rites, their Jewish customs. And he did this voluntarily simply to promote unity in the church. He became a Jew to win Jews. 
And this might give the gospel a wider audience in Jerusalem and beyond, and it was an attempt at removing obstacles for the spread of the gospel. That's the passage. So I think one thing it does is teach us to recognize the importance of a Christian's liberty of conscience. Have you heard that phrase before? A Christian's liberty, freedom of conscience. Some might think, and I'll explain that in a minute, some might think that his behavior was inconsistent with biblical principles. Wasn't he the one who said, by the way, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So did he here in this instance capitulate to Jewish weakness and disregard Gentile freedom? Paul, isn't the law a yoke that the Jews were not able to bear? And it may seem to some that Paul had changed his mind and put himself under the law. But that would be a mistaken conclusion because his belief did not change. Paul the Apostle maintained that you and I and every Christian is justified by faith and not by works of the law. But he also believed that a Christian could follow the law voluntarily if he or she wished. He could do this without guilt as long as he realized that that law carries no religious value. One could observe Jewish tradition which meant nothing with regard to his justification. For Paul, circumcision and feast days and the Jewish diet were matters of indifference. You want to do it? Go ahead. You don't want to do it? You don't have to. It's indifferent. The cross revolutionized the way that God administered the covenant of grace. Under the Old Testament, he administered this great covenant through promises and prophecies and sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover. But then under the new covenant, he now administers this great covenant with preaching of the word and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Same covenant same substance, different administration. And those things that once identified God's people are no longer have any significance. He says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So let me give you an example. Here we have a Jewish father. And he may want his son circumcised according to custom. That's what the Jews do. And Paul would have no objection. He was flexible. This was tradition. After all, there was a great deal of history and Jewish identity wrapped up with circumcision. But Paul would also say that the boy's circumcision was religiously insignificant. It means nothing redemptively. It has no redemptive value, no importance regarding your salvation. You're simply doing this for tradition. And the same could be true about feast days and dietary restrictions. In matters of indifference, we must be guided by this principle. Romans 14, verse 5. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. If you observe circumcision or feast days or food restrictions, you do so in honor of the Lord. If you abstain from any of these, you abstain in honor of the Lord. Whatever you do, you must be convinced that you can honor 
Christ. But wait a minute, somebody says. How can I honor Christ if I submit to the rite of circumcision? It seems to me the New Testament almost forbids it. Well, Paul circumcised Timothy because they would be companions in the ministry. And being circumcised, Timothy could gain a hearing among the Jews. Do you see? So for the sake of Christ and the gospel, he submitted to this tradition. He knew it meant nothing with regard to his salvation, but it might help him serve others. So among Jewish company, Paul was willing to conform to Jewish customs. Among Gentile company, Paul was willing to enjoy Gentile freedom. And the driving force behind all of this was simply the glory of Christ and the spread of the gospel. Paul was at liberty with respect to these things that were indifferent. They didn't make any difference with regard to salvation. So in our treatment of others, you and I, as Christians, let's imitate the consideration of the Apostle Paul. His primary task was to deliver the collection and report of his progress, and yet he wanted to do what he could to neutralize false and divisive rumors. So he submitted to this plan. And he says to the Romans, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's why Paul did what he did. That's why we can do what we do. For the peace of the church, Paul joined in the purification and paid their expenses. And some people long for peace. Other people talk about peace. Very few do anything about peace. Peace between Christians is a very precious thing, and it requires real intentionality, doesn't it? Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And what that implies to me is that a true Christian seeks peace. Peace with God, peace in his own conscience, peace with his fellow believers. God commands us as Christians to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, the peace of the church. And when we take our membership vows, and you've all heard it, one of them says we promise to study the purity and the peace of the church. And you know what's funny? That word study, it's far more robust in the days of Westminster than today. That word study and that vow doesn't mean that we simply read about it. It means that we do something about it. We're diligent in the pursuit of peace and purity. We think about it and we pray about it and we treat others so that we maintain it. And this involves humility and self-denial and brotherly love, and that's not easy. At least it's not easy for me. I'm inherently selfish. But you know something? It's worth it. Because turmoil within the church can be a miserable thing. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And the flip side is true. How bad and miserable it is when brothers dwell in disunity. And to this end, we must allow each other freedom in matters that are religiously indifferent. Matters that have no bearing on salvation. Matters that are not commanded in God's word. We must allow each other freedom. For example, celebrating Christmas 
It's a matter of indifference. You can do as you please. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. By all means, contend for the gospel and never compromise on the cross because the blood of Christ is necessary for our salvation. But in matters that are indifferent, let's be considerate with respect to each other. What's that old saying that Augustine, well, it's attributed to Augustine. In essential things, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. In all things, charity. That ought to govern the fellowship of believers. I remember 25 years ago, you'll remember this. I remember 25 years ago having discussions with people over the topic of education. Some chose to homeschool, great choice. Others chose to send their kids to private school, good choice. Still others sent their kids to public school, good choice. There were all kinds of different reasons for each one of these decisions. Well, one Sunday, a man stood up in Sunday school and publicly and flatly declared that all public schooling was sinful. And not only was it discourteous, ignorant, and rude, but it was wrong. I said to him, so what you're telling me is that in every place, in every time, under every circumstance, it's sinful? In other words, you're telling me that we're morally obligated to keep our kids out of the public school? You're telling me that it's sinful for a single mother, a widow, who's working just to make ends meet, to send her young child to the local school? Is that what you're saying? What a gross misinterpretation. He was teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And you know what Jesus says about that? In vain do they worship me. He was usurping God's authority and don't take away my liberty. You may not like the public schools, so be it. But don't presume to stand in the place of God. Liberty of conscience, that's what we're talking about. Liberty of conscience means that my conscience is free from your preferences. Isn't that wonderful? I am not morally bound to believe or practice anything that's not taught in Scripture. If you can show me in the Bible where you got that, I'll repent and I'll obey. But until then, don't infringe upon my Christian liberty because I am free in Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus shed his blood to obtain for me this freedom. How on earth can I throw it away? Paul tells the Galatians, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If Jesus Christ paid such a price... For my freedom, I dare not squander that freedom. Not only would it be a monstrous insult to his majesty, but I'd become a slave. And besides, 
We're taught in our catechism to make men the lords of our faith and conscience is a sin against the first commandment. So this, with this in mind, let's also strive to pursue things that make for mutual upbuilding. That's what Paul says. Peace makes way for upbuilding or edification, and we can't do that if we're at odds with one another. Whenever we quarrel, whenever we bicker, it only leads to disharmony and discord. So we strive for the things that make for peace, and we make way for the upbuilding. In addition to the public ministry, for example, we pursue wise counsel and godly reproof, seasonable instruction and pious examples and encouraging words and showing up. What a great encouragement to show up. Scripture refers to us as God's building, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there is a need for upbuilding because the foundation has been laid, but the superstructure is going up and it's being built right now in this place and in many others across the world. Each one of us has an important role to play. I hope you know that. Every member is crucial. Paul says in Ephesians 4, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love, each and every single part. No one is so strong in the faith that he can go without edification. And no one is so weak in the faith that he can be excused from edifying somebody else. Every member of the body needs and can give spiritual edification. And you might think it's trivial, but your presence here is vital. I've been asked that question many times. What can I do to encourage you? Show up. Peace and mutual upbuilding will not just mysteriously happen. You and I are to be proactive. Most, if not all of you, have seen a gaggle of geese. I hope you have, flying south, sometimes north. A gaggle of geese flying in a V-shaped formation. And to us on the ground, it's a thing of beauty. But to the geese, it is an essential element of their survival. At certain intervals in that gaggle of geese, the lead bird who was doing most of the work by breaking the force of the headwind will drop off and he'll fly at the end of the formation. And this is because the flapping wings create an uplift of air and the effect of which is the greatest, is the greatest at the rear of the formation. So the geese take turns uplifting one another and by cooperating, by working together, they can achieve long migrations that would be otherwise exceedingly difficult for the strongest and very dangerous for the weakest. Well, in like manner, believers in Christ are to actively uplift one another through prayer and fellowship and heartfelt friendship. And with this in mind, let's try to imitate Christ himself as we strive for peace and upbuilding because this kind of pursuit is a reflection of the very life and ministry of Jesus. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. He was appointed by God to reconcile sinners and establish peace between us. And thus of the Lord Jesus, Scripture says that he himself is our peace. The eternal Son of God, think of it for a minute, left the blessedness of heaven for this mission on earth. The three persons of the Trinity, as mysterious as that is, and I can't explain it, but it's true, the three persons of the Trinity enjoyed infinite joy from the depths of eternity. They existed from everlasting, and they'll exist to everlasting. And that Trinitarian fellowship was sweet and blissful and pure and ever-blessed. We read this morning of the pre-incarnate Christ saying this, I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. And you and I can't even imagine the depth of intimacy and dearness and unity in that fellowship. It was rich and pure and uninterrupted until the fullness of time. And that's when the, God, the Son of God emptied himself of his glory and took the form of a servant. Remarkable to me is the fact that he left the comforts and the joys and the delights of heaven to live on this sin-cursed earth. Never had he known grief. And yet now he becomes this man of sorrows. Never had he felt pain. And yet now he endures reproach and experiences life in a fallen world. But now he would suffer and endure shame and be insulted by the God of this world. From the perfect fellowship of the Trinity, he descended into loneliness. And eventually, as you know, he died under the curse as he bore the sins of all the elect. And why did he do this? Why? He did it so that you and I might have peace with God and with one another. He did it that we might live with him joyfully in the blessedness of heaven. Has there ever been anyone who's considerate and concerned for others like Jesus? He spent his life and he shed his blood and he endured that shame for the church. And insofar as we seek peace and upbuilding, we imitate our Lord. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it as the most important thing. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, we're told he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, not just death, even death on a cross. He gave his body and he shed his blood and he sacrificed himself for enemies. And God says because of what he did, he'll bring us to a place of peace where every tear will be wiped away. And death will be no more. There will be no mourning, no crying, no pain. There will be no falsehood, no error, no evil one or evil people or false teachers. 
Our life in the new creation will be entirely free from all trouble and sorrow. There will be no night and no ignorance and no sin or sadness, nothing but pure, unadulterated joy. It'll be a state of such health and vigor that no one here has ever experienced the like. And the glorified body, it'll be perfect in all of its parts. Never an injury, never illness. Our fellowship with the saints and the angels will be more sweet than ever. But especially sweet will be our enjoyment of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We will have fuller knowledge and larger views and more comprehensive understanding than you can even conceive of. And all because the Son of God voluntarily died to secure our peace and upbuilding. And shouldn't we who claim the name of Christ follow his example? May the Lord enable us to do so. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example and the teaching of the Apostle Paul, whom you inspired. We thank you that in things indifferent, we do have freedom, that Jesus Christ, by his shed blood, has given us liberty, of, liberty from the preferences and the commandments of men. We're grateful for his life, his death, and his resurrection, which gives us certain unshakable hope for life in the new world. Please help us to sing your praise with joy and gratitude, for we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.